A very warm welcome to the Disciplines of Peace conference. Thank you for signing up and thank you for coming. This is the fourth uh, conference that Ox Peace has organized. Um, the pattern of the day is on your programs. We'll have two keynote speakers this morning, whom I'll introduce in a moment. And then uh, you're welcome to lunch. Then we have two sessions in the afternoon before tea, one on how certain academic disciplines feed into the understanding of peace and peace building, and another on practical skills and the relationship between practical skills and academic research. Then we have tea, and then we're going to move, we're going to stay in the tea room across there to have a slightly more round discussion, <coughs> hopefully feeding in ideas that you may have on how this could fit in to the Oxford scene. Um, I think you've probably found out where all the facilities are, but basically the facilities are in that direction and uh, food is over in that direction. And I think if there's a fire, you know where the exits are. Good, having fulfilled all righteousness, um, Oxpeace, the Oxford Network of Peace Studies has been going for about five years now. It's a multidisciplinary initiative to promote the academic study of peace, what is the nature of peace, how do we understand it, the different understandings of peace, of peacemaking, peacebuilding and peacekeeping in the University of Oxford and indeed beyond, and we have many international contacts. Oxpeace comprises scholars and students from a variety of disciplines and organizes ongoing um, events, lectures, seminars, often joint seminars, and these conferences. And through its email lists, we have a worldwide one and a local one, we publicize information about other relevant events. And in the medium term, perhaps uh, even shorter than that, if uh, things go well, Oxpeace looks forward to the establishment of posts in the study of peace, peacemaking, peacebuilding, peacekeeping, here in Oxford. Much goes on which is relevant and uh, explicit posts for this um, might well seem attractive. We have four patrons. The uh, Emeritus Archbishop of Cape Town, Desmond Tutu, the present Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, President Jimmy, Jimmy Carter, and the Chancellor of the University, Chris Patton, the Right Honourable Lord Patton of Barnes. And from one of those patrons, Rowan Williams, we have a message to this conference, which I'm just going to read. Everyone will sign up for peace as a desirable ideal. Not so many will do the same for the prolonged work involved in creating sustainable peace. This entails building certain kinds of human habit, as well as public policy. Above all, the capacity to look calmly and intelligently at individual and collective emotion, prejudice and desire. In focusing on the question of the disciplines of peace, you will be opening up these issues in what I'm sure will be a deeply constructive way. The question of what makes peace 
rather than conflict, the default setting for troubled societies could not be more urgent. It is not about creating ways of avoiding issues or building empty consensus, but about a shared commitment to shared work, pushing back at suspicion and impatience. The importance of the network is immense. I wish you well with this event, but also with the whole project of establishing a permanent presence in the academic life of Oxford for these urgent matters. And a short uh, thought from our, one of our other patrons, Desmond Tutu, in a recent email. I was in Lesotho last Friday, having been invited by the Christian Council to address the political leaders on political tolerance ahead of a general election next month, that is this month, May. Peace studies must have an important component on political tolerance to avoid the violence at elections which can so easily escalate. Africa, or parts of it, is seemingly returning to the instability of the post-colonial period with its coups, and oh dear, Syria. Your course is desperately needed. Let us hear the first speaker today. Richard Kaplan is here in Oxford, Professor of International Relations. He's written extensively on international organizations and conflict management, nationalism and ethnic conflict, European security and defense policy, and post-conflict peace and state building, especially in the Western Balkans. And he will be addressing us this morning on defining these terms of peace making, peace building, and peacekeeping. Richard. Good morning, and thank you very much for coming, and thank you uh, Liz and the other organizers of this conference for inviting me to speak today. I want to congratulate you on the fourth annual conference that Oxpeace has convened. I don't know at what point an event becomes an institution, but the Oxpeace annual conference appears to be well on its way to becoming an institution, and I very much hope that that succeeds. This session is titled Defining Peacemaking, Peacebuilding, and Peacekeeping. And if anniversaries mean anything, it's a, an appropriate moment to reflect on the meaning of these terms because it's almost 20 years ago to the day, June 17, 1992 to be precise, when UN Secretary General Boutrous Boutrous Ghali issued his report under the document numbers A-47277 and S-24111, better known, and indeed now very known, <clears throat> as an agenda for peace. Among other things, that relatively short report defined and elaborated on key terms relevant to international efforts to maintain and or establish peace, including the terms that are under discussion at this conference today. Now, despite very significant changes in the international context and in international practice since an agenda for peace was first issued, it remains an important point of reference today. What I'd like to do is to look at the terms as they were understood in this report, penned in the early days of the post-Cold War period, 
and to reflect a little bit on the evolution in thinking and practice with respect to these terms, largely but not exclusively with reference to the work of the United Nations. Now, classifications can seem rather arbitrary. In one of his essays, the Argentine writer Jorge Luis Borges described a certain Chinese encyclopedia, as he put it, in which it is written that animals are divided into 14 different categories. Among them, the following categories. A, those belonging to the emperor. B, embalmed. C, tame. D, sucking pigs. E, stray dogs. F, frenzied. G, just having broken the water pitcher. And H, that from a long way off look like flies. Now, Boutrous Ghali's classification of instruments of peace is arguably much less arbitrary. The key terms in an agenda for peace are preventive diplomacy, peacemaking, peacekeeping, and in what was at the time a new addition to the diplomatic lexicon, post-conflict peace building. And the order of presentation is not insignificant. The terms correspond to different phases of the conflict cycle preventive diplomacy occurring before the outbreak of hostilities, post-conflict peacebuilding occurring after the secession of hostilities, and peacemaking and peacekeeping generally sandwiched somewhere between the two, although some activities may extend across the conflict cycle. While these four areas of action can be seen as distinct activities, notwithstanding some overlap between them, they should also be viewed as individual elements of a coherent whole, even if in actual practice that coherence has not always been achieved. Now what about the terms themselves? Let's start with the definitions of these terms provided by an agenda for peace and then examine them more closely. Preventive diplomacy. Boutrous Ghali tells us, and I'm quoting from an agenda for peace, Preventive diplomacy is action to prevent disputes from arising between parties, to prevent existing disputes from escalating into conflicts, and to limit the spread of the latter when they occur. Peacemaking is action to bring hostile parties to agreement, essentially through such peaceful means as those foreseen in Chapter 6 of the Charter of the United Nations, which deals with the Pacific settlement of disputes. Peacekeeping, as Boutrous Ghali defined it at that time, is the deployment of a United Nations presence in the field, <clears throat> hitherto with the consent of all the parties concerned, normally involving United Nations military and or police personnel, and frequently civilians as well. Peacekeeping is a technique that expands the possibilities for both the prevention of conflict and the making of peace. And finally, peacebuilding is action to identify and support structures which will tend to strengthen and solidify peace in order to avoid a relapse into conflict. Now let's examine each of these terms a little bit more closely. Let's start with preventive diplomacy, which I'm taking the liberty of including in my discussion, even though it doesn't figure in the title of the talk that the conference organizers devised for this session. Now, just about everyone can agree that it's much better to prevent the outbreak of hostilities wherever possible than it is to wait until the outbreak of armed conflict before taking action. 
The cost of delay in terms of lost lives and armed intervention, where there is one, will in every case be greater and often much greater than the cost of preventive measures. I mean, consider what the deployment of a small contingent of international forces to Bosnia might have meant on the eve of the war there in 1992, where more than 100,000 lives were lost, 250,000 people were forcibly displaced, and billions of pounds have been spent in rebuilding that war-shattered society. The World Bank has calculated that the average cost of civil war is equivalent to more than 30 years of GDP growth for a medium-sized developing country. 30 years of GDP, that's a lot of income lost. The most severe civil wars impose cumulative costs of tens of billions of dollars, and recovery to original growth paths take the society concerned an average of 14 years, and that's a high price to pay for inaction. Yet despite the prospect of saving large numbers of lives and large amounts of expenditure, preventive deployment, the dispatch of soldiers and police before at the early stages of an armed conflict, is a very rare event. Indeed, strictly speaking, the only major UN preventive deployment occurred in 1993 when the UN Security Council, concerned that Macedonia would become the next theater of armed conflict in the former Yugoslavia, decided to deploy a battalion of 700 Nordic troops joined by 300 US troops. Now, of course, we don't know that a given preventive deployment will necessarily be successful, although in retrospect, at least with respect to Bosnia, it seems fair to say that the worries about the strength and commitment of the Serb forces were exaggerated. And in the case of Macedonia, we don't even know how much credit preventive deployment deserves because we can't assess the counterfactual claim that in the absence of such a deployment, war would have spread to Macedonia. But certainty in such circumstances will always and necessarily be elusive. There are two other difficulties associated with the preventive diplomacy. First, it's necessary to have good, reliable intelligence, a lot more than a hunch and a rumor, to be able to devise a form of effective engagement. And that intelligence, for the United Nations at least, is often hard to come by because many states especially those that worry that they could find themselves on the receiving end of a UN-authorized intervention, have always been reluctant to endow the United Nations with the capacity it needs to track emerging crises. The UN is a lot better than it used to be in being able to foresee crises, but national governments, such as the United States, often have much better intelligent resources at their disposal, and they're not always inclined to share the intelligence they gather with the UN. The second difficulty associated with preventive diplomacy is that it's often hard to mobilize resources, whether troops or financial contributions, in the case of crises that have not yet erupted. National governments find it easier to justify expenditure when a crisis is visible, for which purpose the media can be useful. But the media are not always interested in non or not yet crises. A colleague of mine working as a freelance journalist in the Balkans on the eve of the Bosnian War was told by his editors to ring back after the war had begun because they weren't interested in the story before that point. Now also, if preventive action is going to entail the violation of national sovereignty, as it did in the case of the 1999 
NATO war against Serbia, a half prevention actually as the mounting crisis in Kosovo had already cost lives, but if it is going to entail a violation of national sovereignty, then it's all the more important for governance, governments to be able to justify their actions, which a well-established crisis allows them to do. Otherwise, it may appear that governments are overreacting. Now, I've been talking a lot about preventive deployment, but preventive diplomacy is not limited to preventive deployment. It may also take the form of early warning, which the UN Department of Political Affairs works to achieve with its monthly horizon scanning. These are briefings for the benefit of the Security Council that focus on current and emerging conflicts. And that was also the purpose for which ICG, the International Crisis Group, a non-governmental organization, was established initially. Preventive diplomacy is also reflected in mediation efforts, many of which are pursued outside the public's eye. In the autumn of 2008, for instance, the UN Secretary General appointed the former Nigerian president as special envoy for the African Great Lakes in the context of growing tension and fear that the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, was again about to become the theater of a regional war. The special envoy engaged in shuttle diplomacy, again outside the public's eye, that led eventually to the demobilization and disarmament of rebel groups and measures to address their underlying grievances. So these were also preventive measures. Now mediation efforts are also part and parcel of peacemaking the second tool in the conflict management toolkit. Mediation is only one of numerous means for the peaceful resolution of conflict. Peacemaking can also be achieved by negotiation, inquiry, conciliation, arbitration, judicial settlement, and resort to regional agencies or arrangements, all of these specified in Chapter 6 of the UN Charter. Using these or any other peaceful means, member states are actually obliged by the UN Charter to seek a solution to conflict, but they often ignore that obligation. And the Security Council can also make recommendations for the settlement of a dispute. Now, Boutra Scali was rather fulsome about the adequacy of these measures. He wrote in an agenda for peace, if conflicts have gone unresolved, it's not because techniques for peaceful settlement were unknown or inadequate. <coughs> the fault lies first in the lack of political will of parties to seek a solution to their differences through such means as suggested in Chapter 6 of the Charter, and second, in the lack of leverage at the disposal of a third party if this is the procedure chosen. The indifference of the international community to a problem or the marginalization of it can also thwart the possibilities of solution. We must look primarily to these areas if we hope to enhance the capacity of the organization for achieving peaceful settlements. In other words, he was saying, we have all the instruments we need to settle disputes peacefully. No need to create new ones. It's just political will that's lacking. Now, there's a long history of the utilization of distinguished statesmen and stateswomen to facilitate the processes of peace. Some of you may have heard Marty Atazari, the former president of Finland, speak here in Oxford two weeks ago about his experiences as a peacemaker in relation to Namibia, Kosovo, and Aceh in Indonesia, among numerous other disputes he's helped to settle. Like Boutrous Ghali, 
Atasari strongly believes that any conflict can be resolved provided that there's sufficient willingness on the part of the parties involved that key members of the international community support the peacemaking process and that the peacemaker is an honest broker, which for Atasari, interestingly enough, is all about fairness and not neutrality. It's an important distinction that he made. But how does one induce willingness? In some cases, peacemaking efforts may stand little chance of success unless and until a hurting stalemate, to use William Zartman's term, has been reached and the parties feel they simply cannot prevail over the other. That's what brought the warring parties to the negotiating table in El Salvador, and it's the absence of a hurting stalemate that is perhaps one reason, perhaps the principal reason, why the peace between Israel and Palestine remains elusive. Now, peacemaking has changed significantly over the past two decades in at least one respect. There's now much greater scope for non-governmental actors to play a role in these processes. The notion of different tracks of diplomacy originates with Joseph Montville, a U.S. diplomat who in 1981 made the distinction between official track one diplomacy and unofficial track two diplomacy. But for a long time, NGO involvement just meant support for official efforts, and gradually it developed as an approach of its own. So for instance, the Oslo process, which facilitated the first direct discussions between Israelis and Palestinians, took place entirely outside of the official peace process, so much so that the Americans apparently were not even informed of it until late in the game. In that case, however, some of the parties involved were officials, but they were acting in an unofficial capacity. Whereas, to cite another example, the NGO Search for Common Ground promotes people-to-people -people diplomacy that seeks to overcome barriers and build confidence between ordinary individuals in the context of polarized societies. The past two decades have also witnessed the rise of, or at least a greater role for, informal groups of states, such as contact groups or friends of the UN Secretary General, organized to work in support of peacemaking efforts. These informal groups are self-selected, ad hoc coalitions of able and willing countries that lend leverage to the efforts of the Secretary General to work outside the UN framework, uh, but in accordance with its principles. The post-Cold uh, War period has seen a proliferation of these groups, in part because the increased number of conflict situations has strained the UN's resources, but also because there are perceived advantages, greater flexibility, often greater consensus, of like-minded states working together to achieve the peaceful resolution of conflicts many of which are in their own backyards. Peacemaking efforts in Central America and the Balkans, among other conflict-affected regions, have been reinforced by these informal groups. Now, a curious feature of Boutrous-Ghali's treatment of peacemaking is the inclusion of a section on the use of force. One usually finds discussions of the use of force in relation to peace enforcement as a distinct area of action, action not in relation to peacemaking. Now, of course, should efforts to bring about a peaceful settlement fail, then it may be necessary for the Sec Security Council, as provided for by the UN Charter, to resort to the use of force. 
And this is the link then between peacemaking and peace enforcement, otherwise known as war fighting. But the spirit in which the discussion of the use of force is framed in an agenda for peace reflects the heady optimism of the early post-Cold War period, just after the permanent five members of the Security Council had agreed to support the use of force to repulse Iraq from Kuwait, the first time ever such an agreement had been reached. And that optimism led Boutrisgali to call for, and I'm quoting again from the agenda, bringing into being, through negotiations, the special agreements foreseen in Article 43 of the Charter, whereby member states undertake to make armed forces, assistance, and facilities available to the Security Council, not just on an ad hoc basis, but on a permanent basis. And Boutrisgali goes on to observe, under the political circumstances that now exist, again, the optimism of the time, for the first time since the Charter was adopted, the long-standing obstacles to the conclusion of such agreements should no longer prevail. Well, that optimism would soon vanish, and we would be back to where we've always been, ad hoc arrangements by member states, although with a much more cooperative disposition than obtained during the Cold War. That same optimism is evident in another of Boutrisgali's Agenda for Peace proposals, put forward in the context of discussion of his discussion of peacemaking, and that's for the establishment of what he called peace enforcement units to assist in the maintenance and restoration of ceasefires. Such units would be available on call and would consist of troops that have volunteered for such service. Now, the notion of a UN volunteer force is, in my view, a very sensible one. Former UN Undersecretary General Brian Urquhart has been lobbying for it for years. Sensible insofar as member states, because these would be volunteer forces, would then not have to worry so much about the political cost of putting their national forces in harm's way in cases where national interests are not necessarily at stake. But it's an idea that's never caught on both for practical reasons. How would these forces be trained? To what standard? By whom? And who would pay the costs? And for political reasons. It looks too much like a private army of the UN Secretary General, even though, as with any use of force, the deployment of these units would require the approval of the, of the Security Council. Now, the use of force is also relevant to peacekeeping, the third conflict management activity. We can define peacekeeping operations as UN operations in which international personnel, military and or civilian, are deployed with the consent of the parties and under UN command to help control and resolve an actual or potential international or internal conflict. And the idea behind peacekeeping is a simple one. Suspend the fighting and thus lower the temperature and gain time to allow the parties, time and space, for the parties to negotiate a settlement that will resolve the conflict. In other words, peacekeeping is meant to create that space for diplomacy to work. Peacekeeping is not peace enforcement, which we've just been discussing. Peacekeeping succeeds not because the UN deploys overwhelming force. UN peacekeepers are only ever lightly armed, and that's for self-defense. Peacekeeping succeeds because the parties to the conflict want the peacekeepers there, and because as UN forces, they are trusted to be impartial. Now, what I've been describing is what's known as traditional peacekeeping, 
Lightly armed soldiers deployed with the consent of the belligerents for the purpose of maintaining a ceasefire. And from 1956 or 1948, depending on, on how you count these things, until 1987, that's the only kind of peacekeeping there was. But then two things happened with the end of the Cold War. First, there was an explosion in the number of peacekeeping operations. From 1948 to 1987, there were a total of, UN, of 13 UN peacekeeping operations. Since 1987 until present, there have been 53 new operations, four times as many in the past 25 years as there were in the previous 40 years. This year alone, there were 16 active peacekeeping operations. Uh, the total cost to the UN of running these operations is about 7.5 billion US dollars. The UN is sometimes criticized for being bloated and in inefficient, but just to put these costs into perspective, the US was estimated to be spending more than $6 billion a month on its operations in Iraq in 2007. So $6 billion a month for that one operation compared to $7.5 billion for 16 UN operations. Okay, so that's the first change, a surge in the number of peacekeeping operations. The second important change that's taken place is in the nature of peacekeeping. The UN mandate has expanded considerably. These forces are no longer just, it's already quite an achievement, just keeping the peace. They're also responsible for ensuring the delivery of humanitarian aid, for organizing and observing elections, for disarming and demobilizing armed forces, for training police, and for verifying compliance with human rights agreements among many, many other functions. Indeed, in a few cases, Kosovo and East Timor notably, the UN's been responsible for actually governing the territory. Now, these sorts of operations are sometimes referred to as complex peace operations to distinguish them from the traditional peacekeeping that I described earlier. Many of these operations have implicated peacekeepers in civil wars, and that's where the use of force has become relevant to peacekeeping. Historically, with some notable exceptions, peacekeepers have almost never had to use force to keep the peace, and that's because the parties to the conflict, normally states, have had a common interest in maintaining the peace. Peacekeepers in these instances were going with rather than against the grain, so to speak. Now, when peacekeepers have been expected to keep the peace in the context of ongoing violent conflicts, in other words, where there's been no peace to keep, peacekeepers have found themselves challenged by the armed forces that were, for instance, opposed to the delivery of humanitarian aid or to the protection of civilians. In such cases, UN peacekeepers didn't have the full support of the warring parties. Bosnia was such a case. And there emerged from this experience the view that peacekeepers needed to be prepared to use force to implement their mandate. That's why, in an agenda for peace, Boutrous Ghali defined peacekeeping as the deployment of a United Nations presence in the field, hitherto with the consent of all the parties concerned. That was a very significant adjustment that he made to the standard definition of peacekeeping, hitherto with the consent of all the parties concerned, again reflected, reflecting a certain degree of optimism, this time in the capacity of UN peacekeepers to prevail in the face of spoilers seeking to obstruct UN operations. But that optimism too was short-lived. 
Two years later, Michael Rose, the commander of UN forces in Bosnia, would rail against this view, arguing that you don't fight a war in white-painted tanks. Rose was concerned that while force might be used successfully on one or another occasion to implement the UN's mandate to get through a, a roadblock, for instance, UN peacekeepers would very quickly come to be seen as another party to the conflict, and indeed, they would later be taken hostage in Bosnia by Serb forces for that reason. Now, this is why 14 years later, in 2008, we see a reaffirmation of the principle of consent in what's known as the capstone doctrine. This is the closest thing that the UN has to a, a peacekeeping doctrine. In that document, we find the following. United Nations peacekeeping operations are deployed with the consent of the main parties to the conflict. Now, the reason for that the capstone doctrine tells us is because in the absence of such consent, a United Nations peacekeeping operation risks becoming a party to the conflict and being drawn towards enforcement action and away from its intrinsic role of keeping the peace. But the UN's position on the use of force in peacekeeping is actually more equivocal. The same capstone doctrine acknowledges a potential role for the use of force in peacekeeping. United Nations peacekeeping operations are not an enforcement tool. However, the capstone doctrine goes on to say, it's widely understood that they may use force at the tactical level with the authorization of the Security Council if acting in self-defense and defense of the mandate. Robust peacekeeping, as it's known, may be necessary to deter forceful attempts to disrupt the political process, protect civilians under imminent threat of physical attack, and or assist the national authorities in maintaining law and order. But the Capstone Doctrine stresses a United Nations peacekeeping operation should only use force as a measure of last resort when other methods of persuasion have been exhausted and an operation must always exercise restraint when doing so. The use of force by a United Nations peacekeeping operation should always be calibrated in a precise, proportional, and appropriate manner within the principle of the minimum force necessary to achieve the desired effect while sustaining consent for the mission and its mandate. So on this fundamental issue, the use of force in peacekeeping operations, we're in a bit of a gray zone and a long way from the outlook embodied in traditional peacekeeping, which envisioned no real place for the use of force. Now the fourth and final tool in the conflict managed toolkit that I want to look at is post-conflict peace building. Peace building refers to efforts to strengthen and solidify a peace when one has been achieved and avoid a, a relapse into conflict. Given the prospect of recidivism between one quarter and one third of all conflicts reignite within five years of the secession of hostilities, it's hard to exaggerate the importance of peace building. Peace building entered the diplomatic lexicon formally with an agenda for peace although the term can be traced back as far as the, the 16th century. And as a practice, peacekeeping has long existed in various guises, notably within the economic, social, humanitarian, and human rights fields. Peacekeeping itself, which I've just been discussing, can have a peace-building function insofar as the maintenance of peace provides an environment for the deployment, for the development of trust and confidence between former combatants, between former warring parties. But in many respects, conceptually and functionally, 
peacebuilding is now regarded, and increasingly so, as a distinct cluster of activities. The UN's been engaged in post-conflict peacebuilding for some time, but it was only very recently, in 2005, that the UN established the Peacebuilding Commission, the newest member of the UN family, to help consolidate the peace in select countries. The establishment of the Peacebuilding Commission was one of the most notable achievements of the 2005 World Summit of Heads of Government and State that took place at the United Nations, although six years um, after operations began, divided, opinion is divided as to the value that the uh, uh, PBC, as it's known, is actually making, value of the contribution that it's making. There are six countries on the PBC's agenda at the moment, all of them African states, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Central African Republic, Burundi, Guinea, and Guinea-Bissau. PBC involvement has meant sustained attention on these countries, and that's a good thing, but not buckets of aid for them, contrary to their expectations. It's also meant somewhat greater coherence and coordination among international organizations, agencies, and donor states, which is also a good thing. The PBC is not the only peacebuilding player. Within the UN system, UNDP, the development program, and the World Bank play major roles. Outside the UN system, many governments now have dedicated departments for the purpose of peacebuilding. Britain has its Stabilization Unit, formerly the Post-Conflict Reconstruction Unit. The US has its Bureau for Conflict and Stabilization Operations, formerly the Office of the Coordinator for Reconstruction and Stabilization. And Canada has its Stabilization and Reconstruction Force, START. And there are many other uh, countries and international organizations that have departments that reflect an interest in peacebuilding. Now, there's no formula for peacebuilding, and despite very considerable experience by now in El Salvador and Guatemala, Bosnia and Kosovo, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Mozambique, Iraq and Afghanistan, and numerous other conflict-affected regions of the world, there's no consensus on some of the most basic questions about how to proceed. Is the pursuit of justice at odds with or complementary to efforts to consolidate peace in the aftermath of conflict. Opinion is divided. At what stage of peace consolidation is aid most beneficial, early on or at an intermediate stage? Opinion is divided. Should elections be used to engineer outcomes in an effort to promote post-conflict peace? Again, opinion is divided. Now, the fact that the jury's out on so many aspects of peace building, many of them fundamental aspects, shouldn't come as a surprise given the inherently complex nature of the undertaking and the unique experiences of every case. But this isn't to suggest that our knowledge base is weak. In fact, conflict-related scholarship has made very uh, considerable strides in recent years, and I think it is fair to say that much more is now known about the causes and nature of civil conflict and the factors that contribute to failure and success with regard to external conflict management and recovery efforts. However, there's still much more to learn, and it's partly in that spirit that this conference and Ox Peace more broadly has been launched. So the four terms that I've been discussing this morning, preventive diplomacy, peacemaking, peacekeeping, and post-conflict peacebuilding, can be said to represent the principal areas of action in conflict management. 
While much, much more can be said about each of them, I hope that this brief overview was a, a useful foundation for our discussions today. Thank you very much. Thank you.